Every beginning has an end, and every story must finish. But sometimes we look at people throughout history who had so much more to offer, and we are sorry that they left us wanting more. Welcome to So To Speak, I'm Lyle Groninger. And I'm Evan Mead. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about quite a few historical chapters that either ended too soon or the book was just closed too soon. We're going to talk about musicians whose lives ended too soon, either by their own hand or the hand of another, or by a force of nature that was out of everyone's control. Uh, this will be a very tender subject, so if you are um, uh, cautious or sensitive about the subject, uh, then we may ask that you uh, may click off at this point. Trigger. Essentially what uh, my friend is trying to say is uh, there's a trigger warning. The first singer-songwriter on my list is um, a fellow who I actually, whose album I talked about on our last episode, uh, Jim Croce. Now, Jim Croce was born in 1943, and he died at the age of 30 in 1973. Uh, the story behind Jim Croce, um, he was a really powerful, uh, up-and-coming um, soft rock artist, he, um, I, I already talked about on our last episode, um, you, the album, You Don't Mess Around With Jim, but what's really, uh, kind of dark about Jim Croce is that on the Thursday night of September 20th, 1973, uh, Croce was on, uh, a tour, and what happened was the day before his ABC single, I Got a Name, was released, and... Just a side note, I Got a Name uh, turned out to be one of the biggest songs that he would ever be known for. Probably that and Operator and Time in a Bottle are probably his three biggest tunes. The night before I Got a Name was released, Croce and all five members of, of his band uh, were killed when their chartered Beechcraft E-18S crashed into a tree during takeoff uh, from a regional airport in Louisiana. The region is called... Uh, I have trouble pronouncing the name of this location. Uh, I apologize to anyone who lives there. But, um, Natchitoche, Natchitoches, Louisiana. Uh, Croce was taken from us way too young at the age of 30. Uh, I feel like had he stuck around for a little while longer, he could have provided such um a powerful sound uh to the world if he had the chance to just keep on releasing records because he died with maybe two or three albums under his belt so uh but the stuff he did is really really good so he made the most of his time here but he was taken from us way too soon and i do uh i do wish that i uh could have heard more work from him but uh that's kind of the tone of this episode. Uh, once again, we apologize to our viewers. Um, we just felt like, you know, there's some great artists in this world, and sometimes, you know, it just doesn't work out for them. Mm -hmm. Either tragedy gets in the way, or whatever else gets in the way. Mm -hmm. yeah. I really, I'm actually, my anxiety is kind of going up, because I really hope we can do this topic justice, quite honestly. Um, well, if you're going to talk about a musician you talked about on, your, uh, on our last uh, album episode... Please check that out. Uh, I'm going to talk about 
uh, Ian Curtis, the lead singer of post-punk band Joy Division, who uh, I mentioned last in the uh, album episode. Uh, when it comes to the history of Ian Curtis, he is often seen as a very tragic figure in rock. Developing epilepsy and depression in his early adult years, Curtis's uh, stage performances contained a flurry of erratic dancing and out-of-breath vocal work. Many uh, people in the audience thought this was a part of the act, and no one was quite aware of like his actual illness uh, behind the curtain. A lot of people actually decided to call it like the epileptic dance, because when you see it, it's it's very um, very erratic and uncontrolled. So that's that's kind of where the name stuck. And because epilepsy was not an illness that was uh, fully examined or taken all that much seriously as it is now. Treatments were often very ineffective or laden with side effects. While Curtis was medicated, he would often be very groggy and uh, unresponsive. And very, like, uh, very di disaffected. Many shows would culminate in Ian having a seizure or suffer one hours later at the side of his wife any time he came home after a show. Um, flashing lights were eventually banned from Joy Division shows after many incidences. However, that still didn't stop the seizures from coming because Curtis could still be triggered on or set off by loud percussion, which was unavoidable. Curtis began to fear that his condition would eventually kill him. Yes, back in those days, you could actually succumb to epilepsy. And he witnessed this himself during an uh, interview he had with a uh, job applicant who actually had the same condition as his, a, a young woman who had to wear a, a helmet on her head to prevent any like uh, head trauma that would occur during a seizure, which eventually led to the single, uh, She's Lost Control. Um, on top of everything, uh, Curtis also began to have struggles becoming a musician and becoming popular, but as well as having a deteriorating marriage with his wife, Deborah, which le eventually led to him having an affair with his publicist to kind of cope with that all. Ashamed after he was caught by his wife for infidelity, she finalized a divorce and decided to have full custody of their daughter. After the, after the news, uh, Curtis attempted suicide by, de by devouring a bottle of pills. Luckily, he was resuscitated. However, after recuperating and on the eve of Joy Division's first North American tour, Ian asked his wife to reconsider the divorce. However, he later relented and demanded to spend the night alone. The next morning, on May 18, 1980, at the age of 23, Ian Curtis's body was found by his wife. He ended his life by wrapping his neck with washing line and hanging himself off with a Sheila maid. And if you don't know what a Sheila maid is, it's, it's an overhanging uh, dryer, like a, a rack that's very heavy. Uh, it's usually held uh, against a wall by a hook, so it's, it's a very... Uh, very, uh, it's very dangerous if used in that context. All throughout his work, many feelings of isolation, mental disorders, and depression traced their way into Curtis's songwriting, leaving a gloomy impression after the uh, aftermath set in. All the members of Joy Division were completely surprised after they had studied all the lyrics and realized just how troubled Ian truly was. And after uh, Joy Division dissolved, the remaining members of the group went on to form uh, New Order a new wave outfit that went on to continue with great success, even garnering the most successful 12-inch record sale in music history, uh, Blue Monday, in case you ever want to check that out. It's a good single. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a great song. Yeah, that, that is essential 80s right there. So, providing one of the most highly regarded albums of all time, Unknown Pleasures, 
Ian Curtis left an indelible mark in the history of music. I don't know if he would have continued music, honestly. I don't know what he would have done to cope with this. I, I'm sure if this was like in modern times, there'd be like more ways of him being able to perform live and to cope with the uh, the, the trigger mechanisms that set him off. Yeah. But I don't know. It was just such a wrong time to have that kind of uh, affliction. It's very, it's very sad. It was just unfortunate. Yeah. Yep. Well, Evan, uh, what's your uh, what's your next choice? The next guy I'm going to talk about was uh, another very influential artist in his respective genre. However, uh, we're going to go into the world of rap uh, today, oh, and yes. there's going to be a couple rappers that are going to come up on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, first one, uh, I actually who actually um, I a lot of good friends that I grew up with uh, were fans of this guy, Tupac Shakur. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, Tupac Shakur is debatably, the, and I do mean debatably, the greatest rapper of all time because I've. When my friends introduced me to his music, even though I'm not, you know, partial to rap music, uh, I can appreciate some rap music. There's something about Tupac's lyrics that are very, very powerful. Um, probably one of the most powerful songs I've ever heard it was uh, Dear Mama. That's another really good one. Um, he, uh, so Tupac was uh, born in Manhattan, and uh, while he did live in New York City for quite some time, he relocated to Baltimore, Maryland in 1984, and then to California, specifically the San Francisco Bay Area in 1988. Um, This was when he was a teenager, and then in 93, he moved to LA to further pursue his music career. And then uh, his debut album, Two... Tupacalypse Now, uh, when that came out in 1991, uh, that's when he tried to, that's when he, not tried to, that's when he really started to make a name for himself. And uh, he basically came up with more albums, uh, specifically uh, Strictly For My Niggas, uh, and uh, there was also Me Against the World, and those two albums came out in 93 and um, in 95, respectively. Are you going to bring up a certain somebody who came across his path? Uh, are you talking about... Well, he, he he had rivalries with quite a few uh, rappers in the industry. Mm-hmm, and there's one. Uh, yeah, uh, well, th- I was going to get into that because his rivalries would ultimately take a tragic and horrific dark turn. Uh, one of the last career milestones he ma- he did he had was uh, signing on to... Signing a contract with uh, Suge Knight at Death Row Records. And... Uh, I, I'm. This is so. This is what's so shady. Like I really don't know what to say about you know the kind of rivalries that he had. Uh, but you know, it's yeah. No, I don't. I don't really know how to talk about that. But you know, uh, his personal life. Um, uh, he he made. He had friends and he had enemies in the rap community. That's all I can really say without going into too much detail. Um, but very tragically, on September seventh, nineteen ninety six. Uh, he took a trip to Las Vegas to actually celebrate uh, his business partner's uh, birthday. But um, he was shot four times uh, in a drive-by shooting and uh, on Las Vegas Boulevard. And what's scary is, to this day, his murder is still unsolved. And it's been, over t- and it's been almost 25 years. Yeah. Actually, no shit. It's, it will have been 25 years since September. And... Uh, 
Tupac Shakur, Shakur was taken from us at the age of 25. Uh, quite honestly, um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about how there... I don't claim to know the truth behind any of these conspiracy theories, but there are several conspiracy theories behind who is responsible for the murder of Tupac Shakur. According to what my close friend, uh, has, who is a fan of Tupac, has told me that... Although no one really knows for sure, uh, some people believe that Biggie Smalls, another rapper, was actually put a hit on Tupac. Uh, some people say Suge Knight uh, was indirectly responsible for the murder. Um, what's also tr another tragedy that is connected to this case somewhat is um, Notorious B.I.G. was another friend-slash-rival that he had in the business. Notorious B.I.G. was actually a murder suspect in this case, but six months later, B Notorious B.I.G. was murdered himself. Mm -hmm. So, what? And but the influence that Tupac Shakur had on uh, the world of music and the world of rap, it was so powerful that decades later, they actually went out of there. Someone, some technical genius, uh, actually was able to resurrect him as a hologram for oh, yeah, a concert. A yeah. And now how do you feel about these uh, characters that we are talking about today? These people. But you wonder how I feel if you like took kind of like John Lennon and you turned him into a hologram. Yeah. Um, well, we'll get to John Lennon in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I don't know. It seems... I can see why people would find it a little sacrilegious. Why... Sacrilegious. Sacrilegious. Goddamn Simpsons. And why I would feel like it would be a little bit of a betrayal or it'd feel a bit awkward to kind of see another person just being inhibited by machines and computers. Because you have to remember their family is watching. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it, as long as it's respectful to the estate, as yeah. long as they're doing, like, a respectful job portraying the person as they are, yeah. and... Uh, I mean, it's a it's a it's a hot button issue. I, I I don't really have a clear answer. I guess like if I saw like Kurt Cobain holographic, it'd be like, well, this is kind of the only chance in my life I'm ever going to see him perform. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's it wouldn't be exactly the same. The, and the hologram is just going to be lip syncing to a pre recorded version of their songs. But then again, in the modern concerts, more often than people are are willing to admit. Quite a few musicians, when they go up on stage, a lot of the time they are lip-syncing their, their lyrics to pre-recorded stuff. So, um, yeah, that's uh, the story of Tupac. Uh, may he rest in peace. Uh, who's next? Uh, my next pick is Bradley Noel, the lead singer, guitarist, and primary songwriter of ska-punk band Sublime. Um, so, to get into the history of Sublime, I mean, it's going to be kind of... Uh, I mean, it's not going to be too much of a lecture, but basically, after releasing two albums and struggling to break into the music scene, uh, Noel sort of um, had a bit of a downward spiral in the latter chunk of uh, Sublime's history. He got very dependent on heroin and other substances, and it kind of, I, I think, I, I don't have much to claim for this, but I almost feel like when I hear a lot of um, musicians, they always say that drugs make them write better. And I feel that might be a claim that Bradley might have lived by because he wrote a lot before his his untimely death, especially when it got to the uh, creation of the next album I'm going to talk about. But before that, he did 
He did try to attempt sobriety after the birth of his son in 1995, but unfortunately he relapsed one year later during the uh, creation of the self-titled album, the album that everyone knows. Um, this definitely affected the workflow of the uh, creation of the self-titled album, and it really marred. It, it was really marred by Noel's reckless behavior and constant partying and uh, lack of focus. To the point where, like, the band and even the studio had to eject him from the recording process. Mm -hmm. Like, with the last, like, two months left to do. At the age of 28, uh, Noel was found dead of a heroin overdose at his uh, hotel room. His body was discovered by sublime drummer uh, Bud Gow, and his, who found uh, him and his pet Dalmatian Lou Dog, who served as the band's mascot, who was laid curled next to him whimpering. Jesus. Uh, that, 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 that dog stuck with him to the end. Good old Lou. Uh, despite releasing the self-titled album about two months after his passing, the album proved to be a massive success for Sublime, catapulting them to garnering much airtime, breaking charts, and launching Sublime as one of the most successful rock acts of 1997. Um, it's kind of it's sobering, or I guess like sad in, in a way, whenever you see uh, like a music video to say like Santeria, Anytime you, you'll see like Eric and Bud, and they're just like sort of acting in front of the camera. But the, anytime they need to show Bradley, they have to use like stock footage from like concerts, and like kind of like superimpose them into the shots. And it's it's just kind of sad. It's like oh, he, he just missed. He he unfortunately had to miss like the moment where his band got huge. Yeah, and then they they naturally dissolved. But. In 2009, uh, Gao and bassist Eric Wilson regrouped with uh, longtime fan Rome Ramirez to continue with Sublime's legacy. And while there was a little bit of friction with Bradley Knowles' estate, um, to the point where they almost got sued, uh, eventually they just changed the name to Sublime with Rome and everything was fine. And they have continued to tour to this day, despite Gao uh, departing from the project. But uh, they, they still tour. So yeah, um, I think I think Sublime, despite how like kind of chill they are and how nice it is to kind of listen to them on a nice day, like in a barbecue or something, it's just there is this undercurrent of like a like like desperation that kind of comes from a lot of the lyrics, especially if you listen to songs like Two Joint Smoke Two Joints or Forty Ounces mm. of Freedom or. A bad fish is probably the best example where you can tell that Bradley really regrets some of the like decisions that kind of led him to this path. Like uh, one of the lyrics in Bad Fish is like, "I swim, but I wish I never learned. The water's too polluted with germs." You yeah. just wish he never like took took foot into like the heavier side of drugs and addiction. And that's too bad. It's just sometimes there's there's not an easy answer or an easy way out. Yeah, and um. Actually, his son is actually in a band, too, and he seems pretty healthy and, like, pretty happy with what he does and carrying on. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I think Sublime is an excellent band to listen to. I actually just joined a uh, cover band for Sublime, and I, I've learned even more about... Uh, I've learned even more of an appreciation for the band itself after joining, so... Yeah. Highly recommend Sublime. I might cover them in an album uh, episode sometime soon. We'll see. I'd like that very much. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, what's your next one, Evan? Next musician I'm going to talk about, uh, not only, uh, not only did his death, like, leave a hole in the hearts of many fans, 
This guy's death broke up one of the greatest bands in history. Case in point, John Bonham. Uh, the, the, the only drummer of Led Zeppelin. Now, John Bonham was taken from us at the age of 32. Now, just a little bit of background on uh, John Paul Jones, Robert Plant, and Jimmy Page, and John Bonham. These guys... Led Zeppelin really needs no introduction. Like, mm-hmm. in the 19... They started in the late 1960s, and by the 1970s, they were, like, kings of the world. Like, they were redefining rock and roll... They made their mark on a genre, and it was absolutely beautiful. Um, I personally, uh, this this particular uh, pick is difficult for me to talk about because uh, Led Zeppelin was one of the first bands that actually had me understand rock and roll, mm-hmm. and uh, I was even more set. Like I, I, I remember having a uh, I one of the. Uh, uh, supervisors in an after-school program I was in um, was a huge fan of Led Zeppelin, and she actually loaned me like um, this scrapbook of like you know pictures of them when they were in rehearsals, and uh, you know pictures of them on tour, and just how tight they were, and how you know they all like you know came together to write to write their songs and how their songs were written. Uh, when I listened to John Bonham's drumming. Um, it, it, it is some powerful stuff. Uh, personally, because I... Uh, our good friend Josh is actually a drummer. Um, we should mention that. So, yeah. um, ever since like Josh got into drumming, I kind of listen to rock albums with, you know, just specifically for the drums. But I listen mainly for vocals and uh, electric guitar stuff. Lyle, you're a little more different because you'll listen to, some, uh, to a rock song for its bass because you yourself are a bassist. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's just the way I uh, interpret music. But um, uh, the song to me where John Bonham's drumming stands out the most was always uh, either Four Sticks or Rock and Roll. Yeah, Rock and Roll is really great. Yeah, I, I liked his work on Cashmere actually. Yeah, it's no. not like it's not incredibly complex, but it just hits so hard. Yeah, or like when the levee breaks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it's great. Especially, yeah. it sounds like an echoey too. Like, yeah. So, anyways, um, this is where the tragedy strikes. On, so, uh, John Bonham uh, died at age thirty-two in the year nineteen eighty. So, when the seventies ended, uh, so to, it was kind of the end of an era all around. So, this is what happened. On September 24th, 1980, Bonham was picked up by Led Zeppelin assistant Rex King to attend rehearsals for at Bray Studios for a North American tour that was set to begin on October 17th in Montreal, Quebec, right here at home. Uh, this would have been the band's first uh, tour since 1977. Uh, during the journey, Bonham asked to stop for breakfast where he drank four quadruple vodka screwdrivers that's 16 shots between 400 and 560 milliliters, also the equivalent of 9-13 uh, in terms of, like, the blood alcohol what level. Yeah. So he continued to drink heavily, and then after arriving at, after arriving at the rehearsals, the band stopped rehearsing late in the evening, and then they went to Paige's house, which was uh, the old mill house in, in Kluwer, Windsor, um, and at midnight on September 25th, Bonham fell asleep. Someone took him to bed and placed him on his side. Led Zeppelin tour manager Benji Lefebvre 
and John Paul Jones, the bassist, found him unresponsive the next afternoon. Bonham was later pronounced dead at the age of 32. How did they manage to serve that much alcohol in one sitting? Like, that's... It's insane. Like, but... anyone nowadays would just cut you off after yeah. a while. Like, you can't have that much. Well, then again, like... That's so bad. Yeah, and lo- well, then again, like, these guys are, like, rock and roll gods. Like, uh, are you... Are you a, really? It's the seventies. I guess they didn't have restrictions like they do now. Yeah, like, and the conversation around alcohol wasn't the same as it is today. No. Now, that's, that's um, too bad. after the funeral, a funeral was held. Uh, John Bonham left behind uh, uh, a brother and a sister, and he also left behind. He was married. He was a married man. He left behind a wife, uh, Pat Phillips, and the couple had two children, mm. uh, and uh, Zoe and Jason Bonham, respectively. And his brother, his younger brother was Mick Bonham, and uh, his younger sister was Deborah Bonham. Now, um, rather than replace John Bonham, Led Zeppelin chose to disband out of respect for their deceased bandmate. Mm-hmm. They said in a press release on December 4th, 1980, We wish it to be known that the loss of our dear friend and the deep respect that we have for his family... Together with the sense of undivided harmony felt by ourselves and our manager have led us to decide that we could not continue as we were. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's I, I can't think of too many people who could have replaced him, honestly. Yeah. It's very, like, I like drummers are, like, uh, they're, they're really hard to find, especially they really when are. they're incredibly proficient. Yeah. The way he was. Yeah. It, yeah, it's like the one member that's sometimes very difficult to replace. Yeah. But I mean, it's too bad that Led Zeppelin never really carried out uh, any touring afterwards, and it was just kind of like a permanent disbanding. But but they were like Led Zeppelin was like on top, like they were on top of their game when this happened. Oh, and I feel like, and considering how many tribute bands have taken up the mantle, Van <coughs> Fleet. Yeah, no, like no, there there are like tribute bands that have dedicated that dedicated their lives to resurrecting Led Zeppelin songs. I have a feeling that had john bonham's alcoholism not uh got the better of him i feel like led zeppelin could have been around for another two decades they, they could have been up there with bands that are like, still on like stage rolling stones like rolling stones yeah. kiss although it is worth mentioning that uh jimmy page did go on to uh be in the band them crooked vultures correct or am i thinking of john, john paul, john, jo- john sorry. paul jones yeah john paul jones did go on to be to be the basis for the band that them crooked vultures along with that they they all still worked yeah Yeah, so the musicians went their separate ways did their things but like had this not happened i feel like led zeppelin could have been around with all the other legendary bands from back then that were that are still playing today i'm kind of picturing what led zeppelin would have sounded like in like the mtv era and the glam age oh lord (laughs) like the grunge era well do you do you think maybe they would have changed their sound like the chili peppers did and i don't know like they I don't know, they had such a concrete sound. I don't know how they could have adapted it. Yeah. Like they uh, had such an epic sense of maybe uh, they, musicianship. Maybe they would have t- taken a page out of Peter Frampton's book and tried you know, to incorporate some electronics into their songs. Oh, that would have been nice. Yeah. Electronic Zeppelin, that would have yeah. been cool. Well, that well, Peter Frampton was kind of ahead of his time in that respect. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, um, now I really want to think about. It. Yeah, no, I know this is a sad story, but like, because I saw Led Ze- a Led Zeppelin raise laser rock show, and I just want to like think like electronic Led Zeppelin. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dream about that tonight. That's a good, that's a oh. nice thought. So Led Zeppelin carrying on. 
I mean, you gotta find happy, uh, happy things to talk about when you're talking about stuff like this. I mean, I mean the thing is, is like, it, it, it's just life. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate it happens, yeah. and ultimately, at least there's a legacy to be said. Yeah, well, I, th- th- I, it's just amazing, like, you know, what this what this guy, was, what, what John Bonham was a part of, like, it could have been something, like, truly amazing. And it is, tr- regardless of whether no, they, or not they, it... They left enough of an impression. I the, wouldn't say it's like Led Zeppelin ended too, too soon, but they could yeah. have went further, for sure. They could have went even further, because they already had, like, a ton of albums under their yeah, belt exactly. by, the, by, the, by the time the 70s were over. Mm-hmm. So it's just that we never we were robbed of the opportunity to hear what they could have been like throughout the eighties yeah. and nineties. Yeah, I see. I understand. Anyways, um, who's next? My next. Um, so I, I I I had like a treasure trove of people from the nineties to talk about. I mean, certainly I could have talked about Chris Cornell or I could have talked about Lane Staley. But honestly, I kind of want to give a shout out to someone who it doesn't really kind of falls under the radar a lot when you talk about musicians who kind of like passed away too soon. And that person is Shannon Hoon of the alternative rock band Blind Melon. So Hoon began his musical career when founding members of Blind Melon, Brad Smith and Roger Stevens, witnessed him playing Change on acoustic which was his first song that that's he was playing at a party they really liked his like you have you have style we want to like work with you and they promptly asked him to become the front man of their of their band and uh after recording their first demos hoon was uh you like this part hoon was catapulted into the airwaves after befriending a high school friend who happened to be friends with none other than axel rose of oh. guns and roses oh wow and rose who was uh working on the uh, Use Your Illusion albums at the time, uh, invited uh, Hoon onto the studio, and uh, Hoon actually sung uh, backing vocals for a couple of tracks. Oh, wow. And um, this this gave him the confidence to, be, to think that he had what it took to become like a really big vocalist. Yeah. And during the release of their self-titled debut, Blind Melon garnered massive success after their hit single No Rain hit the airwaves <laughs> and got the multi-platinum recognition. Now, No, no Rain... I gotta admit, like, I love that song, but it's so crazy. Whenever I, I mention it, all they think about is, oh, that's the one with the Bumblebee girl from the music video. Yeah. It's so crazy. It's like, it's a music video that actually almost eclipses the, the level of fame the song has, because that's the one thing people think of. That's the power of a uh, visual medium, I suppose. But carrying on, um, this is where things get a little bit uh, dicey. As soon as he began touring... Hoon developed uh, strange erratic behaviors during live shows. In 1993, he was arrested for indecent exposure after he disrobed and urinated onto the crowd during a show in Vancouver. In 1994, during Woodstock 94, Hoon was caught wearing his girlfriend's dress on stage while while allegedly high on LSD. After taking a break from touring due to Hoon's reputation relating to his personal and legal problems, Blind Melon went on to record their sophomore effort, Soup. After leaving rehab and against the judgment of his drug counselor, Hoon agreed to tour with Blind Melon to support the release of their new album. He was attended to by a counselor during these events, but soon he was dismissed. Several weeks into the tour, at the age of 28, Hoon was found dead inside of his tour bus from cardiac arrest, believed to be attributed by a cocaine overdose. Hoon was survived by his wife and daughter, and on his grave... He had the lyrics from Change, the first song he ever wrote, inscribed into his tombstone. And it went on like this. I know we can't all stay here forever, so I want to write my words on the face of today, and they'll paint it. Yeah. So, 
I don't I don't know too too much about Blind Melon. I know some people kind of categorize them as like a one hit wonder kind of band, but they had like this nice roots style that was very indicative of like the the flavor of '90s music. I think I think uh, I think they don't get as much credit as they deserve sometimes, and I yeah. would certainly like to listen to them more often. Yeah. So, uh, I, I take it you haven't really listened to Blind Melon before? Quite honestly, no. Oh, okay. Well, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're a nice band. I, I think you would get something out of it if you uh, took a listen. So, that was Shannon Hoon. Who's your next pick for the, the day? Well, my next pick is actually going to be uh, Chester Bennington from uh, yes. the lead singer of Lincoln Park. Now, in contrast to my last pick... Uh, just because uh, the death of John Bonham broke up Led Zeppelin, the uh, death of Chester Bennington did not break up Lincoln Park. They did go on a hiatus uh, after he took his own life, but I will get to that in a second. So, um, Chester Bennington. Uh, it is worth mentioning that um, as Lincoln Park was growing in popularity and going on tours, Bennington was plagued with poor health uh, during the making of the album Meteora, which is one of my personal favorites by Linkin Park. And uh, he struggled to attend some of the album's recording sessions. In the summer of 2003, he, be he began to suffer from extreme abdominal pain and gastrointestinal issues while filming the music video for Numb in Prague. He was forced to return to the United States for surgery and filmed the remainder of the music video in L.A., uh, in 2007, he sustained a wrist injury while attempting to jump off a platform during a show in Melbourne, Australia, um, at the Ro at the Rod Ladder Arena. Despite the injury, he continued to perform the entire show with a broken wrist before heading to the emergency room where he received five stitches. And in 2011, Bennington fell ill again, and Linkin Park was forced to cancel three shows and reschedule two from the uh, A Thousand Sons World Tour. Uh, Bennington injured his shoulder during the band's tour in Asia and was advised by doctors to have immediate surgery and uh, that led to some more cancellations of shows and uh, it end actually ended the tour there so uh, now yeah so this guy Bennington I don't claim to know too too much about what was going on in his head because that's one of the things like you know the health problems that they had are like the only clue is still like what what's really gone going on with their lives but uh as for so that's a little bit about him and how his issues kind of uh, got in the way of lincoln park's uh, career shortly before 9 a.m uh on july 20th sh shortly before 9 a.m uh, pacific time on july 20th 2017 chester bennington was found dead by his housekeeper at his home in palos verdes estates in california his death was ruled a suicide by hanging but Bennington left no suicide note, and uh, Mike Shinoda, the bandmate and close friend of his, confirmed uh, his death on Twitter, writing, "I'm shocked, shocked and just shocked and heartbroken, but it's true." An official statement will come out soon, as we have one. And then on July 21st, Brian Elias, the, the chief of operations for the office of the medical examiner coroner, confirmed that. Uh, a half-empty bottle of alcohol was found at the scene, but no other drugs were present. A toxicology report released in December of 2017 reported a trace amount of alcohol in Chester Bennington's system at the time of his death. So, uh, their show for that year, the One More Light Tour... No, sorry, the tour for that year, uh, the band canceled the rest of their One More Light Tour, and they refunded all the tickets. 
Following his death, Linkin Park took a hiatus until April of 2020 when Dave Farrell revealed that the band is working on new music. So, uh, it's truly sad, though, because um, there was something about the way Chester's vocals kind of ide- made Linkin Park so identifiable from mm-hmm. other music from other music bands in the same vein, especially of in, in, yeah, in the new me- the new metal era. Yeah, yeah. 